Hey, Mark. Hey, Mark. How are you? It's good to meet you. Good to meet you. Yeah. I, I was looking over your books, and um, and I like uh, they, look, they look really fun. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your new one with the uh, the orca. You know, that, look, that looks all kinds of like sci-fi channel goodness, you know? It's when I wrote it, that was my uh, interpretation. It's like this this could be like one of those really awful asylum movies when I was old. <laughs> yeah. I, I love those. I mean, like Sharktopus, mm-hmm. um, you know, is a, is a really fun movie. It's Roger Corman. I mean, how could you go mm-hmm. wrong, you know, with uh, with Roger Corman? I think that uh, was one of my favorite ones. Which one? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was a whole spate of those uh, coming out, you know. Yeah, those are just, they're wildly entertaining, you know, very formulaic, um, but that's part of their charm, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I get that. I totally understand that. Uh, so, anything new and exciting uh, in your in your world today? Uh, nothing much. This, uh, as we talked about before, I'm a school teacher, and the school year just ended, which gives me so much more freedom and time to write. Um, just just yesterday, I put a thousand words down onto what I'm hoping to be the sequel to the Whale Shark book. Nice. Well, I'll do my uh, intro, and then sure. we will start rock and rolling. Hey, this is Mark Justice, and welcome back to Between the Lines. Today, we have a multi-genre writer, Mark Denian. Mark, welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, it's good to have you. Uh, now, for those of you in the know, you may think about the name Denian, like, hmm, where does that sound familiar? Well, I interviewed Mark's brother a little while ago, Matt, um, and, and Matt and Mark sometimes write together on a few projects. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, and we're going to get to uh, know each other and, and learn all about your writing, Mark. So, um, <clears throat> so this is great to have you. Excellent. Yeah. I like to start off with big picture questions, um, okay. you know, and, and, and maybe being a teacher, you mm-hmm. understand the importance, the connection between reading and writing and, and how they relate. So who, who are some of your favorite writers? So that's it. It's interesting how you, you, you introduced me there with the concept of a I'm a, a multi-genre uh, author. Therefore, I have multi-genre favorite authors. Um, when it comes to the realm of, uh, I don't even know how to phrase the term. I've tried looking it up before. I've, I've heard marine terror, which actually has turned into like, right, when I Google that, I get a lot of war stories. But it's more yeah. like that, that deep sea horror. Creature, uh, creature terror. Creature, creature terror. Um, uh, Steve Alton comes to mind immediately, um, as does Peter Benchley. Um, I've found some more recent, um, my, my love for those creature terror books goes back decades. Um, and at first, it was really, really hard to find people like that, that wrote stuff like that outside of Benchley and Alton. Um, with the invention of the internet and Amazon, it's become far easier to find stuff. Unfortunately, it's some stuff is just not that good, but it's it's yeah. there. So, um, right, you go back to Herman Melville, correct, um, and then you go back even farther to stories of like the Kraken, you know, back into mythology, sea serpents, you know, all, all kind of you know the the um, the the Odyssey, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, with the correct. with the Scylla and, and Charybdis, mm-hmm. and I and I found uh, the more I, I like dove deeper into this, there's it's interesting to look at how the development of authors comes along. 
Um, see, as a writer and a teacher myself, I, I tell my students there's, there's two types of people. There's a writer and there's a storyteller. The storyteller is someone who's got an idea who can who really just wants to get it out there and then they put it out there and they don't care about character development or it's, it's just, a, oh, here's my story. And then there's the writer who crafts it and understands that a, a, a two-minute coffee conversation between two characters can mean more than a fight between two giant monsters across the entire book. And you find with the invention of the internet and stuff like that, you get a lot of those storytellers who pop up and get books published and, you know, good for them. And then you get, you do weed out and find the occasional writer who wants to weave a story and tell you and bring you into a world. So yeah, that's where I, I find Alton and, and Benchley, um, Jeremy Robinson, another great one in that aspect as well, that I think is a great writer. Uh, those are probably my bigger key uh, influences. Okay. Um yeah, Benchley's made a made a, a pretty penny on writing these uh, creature, you know, books. I mean, Jaws. Uh, he also had one. I think it's called Creature, if I'm not mistaken. It was originally called White Shark. No, the the <laughs> other one. He had one called Creature, I believe, that was all a Sci-Fi Channel, like a two three part yes. Sci-Fi Channel. That was called Creature. But the what was the book was called White Shark? Oh, okay. Which uh, actually, was my book quite frequently. That's <laughs> okay. Yeah, Jaws. Um, was one of those movies I mean I saw it when I was eight, you know, and in the theater, just covering my hands, uh, my eyes just terrified me, you know, such a such a viscerally moving movie. But I love all those kinds of um stuff. You know, I mean creature the movie itself is not great, but it's entertaining. You know, it's wildly entertaining. And like you can't expect much. You know, I'm not expecting uh, you know, Citizen Kane here. <laughs> I just want to have a fun movie, you know. Exactly. You know, yeah. I like that Jaws is one of the few occasions where I tell people the movie was better than the book. Because honestly, the book is more of a mafia book than a shark book. Yeah, I agree. I, I didn't like the book. I read it. I'm like, wow, this is really disappointing. How did they make such a good movie out of mm-hmm. out of this? There's, I mean, the shark is there, but it, it's it's so much more tangibly felt. They honed in on just the shark story, really, mm-hmm. for the movie, and they got rid of the whole like affair with Brody's wife and all these other things going on that were kind of distractions. Yeah, you know, they kept the essence of the mayor and the and his and his need for why the town, you know, why we why, why we can't tell people there's a shark out there. I mean, we need those dollars, but uh, yeah. Otherwise, I'm like, wow, this it was such a disappointing book. You know, I, I honestly, I there was a, a different Peter Benchley book got me into the creature writing, and it was a book called. Um, uh, oh shoot, Beast. Uh, it was about a. Uh, giant squid terrorizing a small marine town yeah and that was my, my my segue into it and i was like oh this is awesome so it's like let me let me pick up another one i was like of course jaws and i picked that up and i was like wow really yeah now this is disappointing mm-hmm. yeah, yes it, it was and i thought you know because i was a fan of jaws um and then i remember going to see the deep thinking mm-hmm. oh another peter benchley movie and like that looks scary i'm like no it, it's really it's really kind of boring it's it has nothing to do with with something scary, you know, the, I was figuring I was waiting for something terrifying. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that Maury Eald really didn't have much to, to offer me. Um, I'm like, oh, so it's a it's a bunch of criminals and morphine, huh? <laughs> oh, all right. You know, it's just my ten year old sensibilities were just like, wait a minute, come on, man. So no, I I get that. Um, well, looking back when you were when you were growing up, uh, can you remember what were some of your favorite books that you used to love to read as a kid? 
So ironically enough, I did not read very much as a kid at all. Um, it was always a sense of, oh, reading's boring, blah, blah, blah. I, I do remember my mom reading to me quite a bit to try to get me interested. I remember um, wanting to be interested in reading, but I really didn't get hit, hit, like, hit by the reading bug until I was in college. Um, I will say that the occasional times where my mom forced me to sit down and read with her, um, actually one of my more favorite ones we had those uh god they were called um illustrated classics where it was like picture on one page story on the other sure. wizard Oz was always one of my favorite ones i just don't, again that was one of those situations i was like the movie missed out on so much that this book had to offer right yeah they they had to kind of streamline well that's why there's there was other oz books you know in that yeah. series and they kind of continue the story in other directions but um yeah and i'm i'm like you with with jaws you know, thinking the book was uh, was not as good. I, I'm one of those people who don't like The Wizard of Oz. Like, I don't like the movie. You know, I mean, the, the monkeys. Like yeah, the moon. The mo Yeah, I don't like the. I, I the monkeys creep me out. It, it just. I just can't stand Dorothy. She's just so whiny. You know, I just like no. Nope. There's just nothing appealing. Even as a kid, I tried to like it. And I'm like, man, there's just something about this movie that just, eh, just uh, almost makes me feel like sick to my stomach. I didn't know what it was. Yeah, yeah. I just, just, I don't know. So, um now I, and then i read the book and then i like the movie even less <laughs> yeah right now if I, i'm looking behind you above your head i i'm trying to tell are those like it's a it's a what is that a layout of are those superheroes of some kind it's a a, a, a streamline it's a, like a, a like a can't even yeah they're dc characters okay i thought i saw batman in the flash i just wasn't sure okay Nice. Well, because some of your books are superhero books aimed at kids. Your creature horror stuff obviously is aimed for adults. So, um, did you were you a fan of reading comic books as a kid? Then, <laughs> nice. Yeah. See, there you go. Um, you you've met my brother. Um, it, he being the older brother, uh, he whatever he brought in, I pretty much got the hand me downs of throughout time. So many a battered copy of Marvel comics, usually when we were kids, uh, handed down to me, and I read quite a bit of superhero uh comic books watched a lot of movies and cartoons uh did get into occasional the superhero books more than i did any other books when i was growing up um but yeah absolutely grew up um and again mostly influenced by matt's decisions to what he wanted to read <laughs> sure yeah no i I, th I think it's important i mean uh i i was always reading comic books and then and then anything i could get my my parents to like you know waste their money on me for you know fam famous monsters of film land or you know with monsters anything like that um but no i was always reading as a kid i was read to as a child and i could read before i went to kindergarten which you know was a great advantage i think in school being able to read and just the love of reading you know uh no i i totally get that so you you you've turned this this love of superhero stories into writing stories superhero stories for kids so mm -hmm what makes a good superhero story to you oh that's a great question um i find it, what makes a great superhero story ultimately is what makes a great story is that you have characters that are believable to a degree but when they become super sensational as superheroes have to be they are different they stand out there's something about them that they, you've never seen before um every person has some sort of superman archetype that has been ripped off from what is his name uh, the uh, homelander from yes. uh, the yeah. to, um, 
men on Invincible. There's like eight, 8 billion of them. So I find if I pick up a story that's got like some sort of Superman ripoff, I'm less entertained. When you, you give me okay. something that is different um, from that aspect, maybe it's someone with a different power, maybe it's a different spin on a classic story. I find it more entertaining than I would just uh, to be a normal superhero story. Um, something like Preacher? Yes. Yes. Okay, right. Yeah, I, I love The Boys. Uh, I think it's just a fantastic uh, comic book series and, and TV series. Um, and I love Homelander. I'm thinking that's probably what would become of any of us had we been given all these powers. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, because you just, it would be inevitable that you would just become corrupt uh, if, if you were in that. Um, and so, no, I, I love the character. He's a horrifying character, but there's something about him that is just, uh, so envious i guess to a degree you know would you say the same thing applies to your creature horror books like what makes a good creature horror story to you i mean you gotta have characters but now instead of humans with powers you got these monsters so is there something intrinsically uh that sets a creature a good creature horror story to you yeah it's uh that that's a far easier question to answer um like, like i said I, when i when i first started getting into reading these stories i, I found those that were really good and those that were just that went by the wayside. Uh, and I thought what stood out to me is it, it, it's got to be like a 60, 40 split. If for a good creature horror story, yes, you, you need the creature. The creature's got to be a central portion to the plot, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the central character. Um, I find that when you make creatures like that, the central character, per, particularly non-sentient creatures where they can't speak, it's really hard to, write that character for a long amount of time without having some sort of like thought process or, or conversation to go through with it you need to add filler of a human story involved with that creature story and that human story is what's going to push the creature uh story together so essentially what makes a really good creature story is that you have this human story that's being propelled by the presence of the creature nice which which you see i think to great extent since you're are you also a kaiju mm-hmm. fan as well um you see that like in dai Meijin, mm-hmm. you know where i mean the the titular character only comes out at the end of the movie you know in the first one but it's it builds up you you know you have so much gravitas with what's going on and then then the creature awakens you know and it's it's like oh it's potent you know yeah very similar to uh what was that korean movie host Oh yeah, yeah. It was kind of yes. like the, the the creature was a secondary part. I mean, it was essential. Cloverfield. Cloverfield's a great example. Yeah. Cloverfield has um the creature is the whole reason the plot is taking place, but the creature isn't necessarily the main character. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I mean, the the human the human characters are what we latch on being people. Um but we have to have something else you know that that intrigues us i think you see a lot of that in science fiction as well i mean like the like the thing or think from another world um arrival uh which you know i think is a great sci-fi movie um yeah so you have to you you have that that elements uh, combining but ultimately the human story we have to feel something i think it's the same for a a good superhero story it's not the costume it's the person inside who's you know who's wearing that costume that's who we care about you know um and that's why i think it was like when Marvel started like getting, changing all their heroes out um, and like swapping out, well, who's in Spider-Man's costume? Who's in Captain America? It's like, who's in Batman? It's like, you know, I didn't like uh, Azrael as Batman. I mean, I liked the character and all, 
But Bruce Wayne is the person I grew up caring about. Same thing with Peter Parker. I think Spider-Man was probably my favorite comic book as a kid. Uh, um, I, I think when it comes to the idea of legacy characters, probably the most well-developed one over the years was Green Lantern, because they made you care about the person who was wearing that ring. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you know, I grew up with Hal Jordan, like, oh, Hal Jordan, Hal Jordan. All of a sudden, like, you get John Stewart showing up, you get Guy Gardner showing up. Um, I hated Guy Gardner. He was such a... <laughs> You can um, swear it's all right. Yes, yeah, he's a, he's an asshat. Well, um, no cursing. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, well, we can we can because you all oh, your kids might your students might be watching this, right? Um, but yeah, they they, they developed these characters that for better or worse you loved or you hated them. And you know, there were times that I picked up comics of Green Lantern just to see Guy Gardner get punched in the face by Superman. So, it, right, appreciate it more. Yeah, the whole run of Justice League International is fun because he's he's there. I mean, he's he's definitely pushing those buttons. Um, but that, see, that comic book I think was a different. The JLI series was different because it was so character focused. It was a character drama, character comedy at times with Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, Guy Gardner, um, just you know, just kind of doing their thing. And that's I liked that interplay. Uh, to that just like justice league europe i thought was really entertaining because you have wally wally west putting your moves on power girl and she's like just shooting her right down you know (laughs) um and that that was that was nice to see because in that mid 80s i mean the comics had taken such a dark turn with the dark knight uh we'd had a crisis on infinite earths i mean dc was cleaning house Mm -hmm. um and you know marvel had just done the secret wars i mean there was just so much heaviness and changed and and for me uh, those two titles that kind of came out in the later half of the of the 80s was like that was kind of like a breath of fresh air like okay there's a little bit of levity we can go back to kind of having fun you know with our books it's not Uh, surprising that in the early 80s you had the the height of the cold war going on so everything around you was dark and depressing and you know life imitates art and art imitates life so right exactly yeah and i i haven't seen i mean i know some some books are trying to make a return to more of a, a lighter tone in their comics i think it's a little harder to do with some characters than others Mm -hmm. um but you know that that was one thing when when i first started reading marvel ultimates i really enjoyed them i mean the stories were great and it's all gritty and very realistic and but after reading a you know couple dozen issues i'm like wait a minute something something doesn't feel right Mm -hmm. and it was like oh i get it that inner child of me the escapism was was not there because it, it was so grounded in reality it felt so real that the comic book sense of goodbye good guy bad guy and like all the worldliness of a comic book which allowed my child you know child self to escape into that was like completely thrown by the wayside you know and that that's like oh okay so there was something it was still not appealing to that child who still enjoys reading those silly comic books you know mm-hmm. Um, as much as the adult side enjoys reading things like Sandman and Swamp Thing and, um, you know, so Animal Man, those 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 more mature, you know, titles that were aimed for an audience that was a little older who grew up reading comic books, you know, in the 70s and 80s. So, um, all right, I'm going to switch gears now. Now that you, you wrote those those genres, are there any other genres that you would like to write? So being a middle school teacher... Um, I've, I, I always, I have um, a binder in my classroom of story ideas that have popped in my head throughout the years. And um, I just, I write them down as I go along. Um, 
I don't really ever think I'll, I'll have the opportunity to act upon them. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, the, the the creature feature I wrote was one of those stories that I, I put in the book and then I told Matt about, and like that was all the further I ever thought I was going to get with it. And then one day, literally this past winter, I had a broken foot and I couldn't get off the couch. And he just, he sends me this email. I was like, hey, jump on this Zoom link. So I jumped on the Zoom link and it was with Raventail Publishing who said, hey, we'll take that. And I was like, all right, now I, I guess I got to write this down. Um, but in, in that book, I have a, a number of other ideas. I think one genre I'd like to try to crack into is more of a young adult, non-superhero kind of almost, and is, this is going to sound cliche, the dystopian realm almost. Um, I know uh, we are. It's a big genre. Yeah, I think we're at the tail end of it, though. I feel yeah. like I'll be cracking into it just as it goes away. <laughs> uh, like at the zombie cycle. Correct. You know, we, we've, we've, that thing has been you know, literally undead for for quite a while. It's like we've beaten that horse to undeath. Um, that's interesting. So what made you decide to, you wanted to go and write this dystopian YA kind of novel? You know, it, 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 the idea I have in my head is something crazy and unusual and satirical mostly. And um, it, it, it's a mixture of like dystopian meets kind of as, as terrible as it sounds, universal monsters. And hmm. I thought, how, how interesting would that be? Where ultimately, in the end, we find out that the true monsters are the the, the people themselves, not the universal monsters. Okay. Huh. All right. So are you going to take this summer to work on that book? There is, you know, readers have their to-read book list. Yeah. I have a to-write list right now. I, I, yes. Same here. I've got like eight of them it's all stacked up they're all yelling at me for not doing any work on them <laughs> yeah i get that um well what was it that made you first want to start writing it's a good question uh, um i can remember really starting to fall in love with writing right around fifth grade i just i don't know like i, I think at the time was the fact that i didn't read and i i was bored by what was being portrayed on tv at the time i, I kind of remember god oh it was an awful brooke shields tv show suddenly susan or something like that okay so it had stuff like that on the air and it was nothing that entertained me so i just remember sitting down one night you know not a reader horrible tv this is well before the, the realm of streaming it was like so what else is there to do to pass the time so i was like well what would i rather see on tv and i just start writing down some ideas and i flesh out a few stories so um and once I, I, I came up with my first few short stories that I wrote just for sheer entertainment, um, a couple of like teachers and guidance counselors saw what I was writing and they praised me for it. So of course, being like this fifth grader getting praised, like, Hey, people are paying attention to me. I think I can write some. <laughs> yes, of course. I mean, that that's, I, I think that's a crucial South, you know, when you, when you get praised for something, especially at that age, I mean, what are you 10, 10 years old at fifth grade or something like that? Yeah. That's awesome. That's excellent. Um, and here you are, all these years, continuing to write. I think once you once you set yourself on that path, you always want to continue like on that path. It's like you don't you you don't ever see yourself not as a writer. You know, does that make sense? You know, um, yeah. I mean, you may not be con creating content daily or anything but you're still got that writer's brain and always like working towards something you know um 
let's talk a little bit about world building because you have to create a place in which characters can live. So how do you go about designing your world or worlds? For me, I feel like world building is a secondary thing. Um, the first thing I, I do is I develop the character. And then once I know what I want from my characters, I go upon building a world that will give them what they need uh, to be able to be sustainable characters, to be able to complete the um, plot with which we're working with. Um, in my one uh, kid's book, uh, The References, um, a story of superheroes who have reference book powers. Um, nice. Uh, you have uh, the Human Dictionary, Atlas, and Thesaurus Rex going across town uh, trying to save the world. They, they're trying to clean up the streets and the grammar of the street. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, I, I wrote this. This is a comic book I wrote and published <laughs> in 2008, a graphic novel. And, um, you know, teaches teaches kids lessons about, you know, grammar and stuff like that. That's awesome. Uh, so, um no, I totally. <laughs> that's that's great. Uh, I love the names too. The Saurus Rexes and, and the Atlas. Come on, this, that's just. I mean, come on, that's great. Um, um but I, I needed a world where they, they they could be acceptable. So people at first like, oh God, there's a living dinosaur, but I guess that's common in this world. Or um, uh, one of my favorite parts is the Human Dictionary. His 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 ability is to define any word ever given to him so his kryptonite is when people use slang because it has oh. no definition so oh. he's like, completely powerless so i need to have a world where there was a evil street gang that only spoke in slang that's so. fantastic i i love that one of the villains in grammar man is fragmento who speaks only <laughs> in fragments um <laughs> and it makes people cry because they're like I, won't, I don't know there wants the whole story um no, no, that's fantastic. Uh, yes, he can't access the Urban Dictionary online. He couldn't like I can't like look up slang. Like, okay, what does this mean? Oh, no, that's I love that. That is so awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, that that's delightful. Those are great. Well, so you, so tell me then more ab ab about the character. Then the character generating process that you know the characters are come first. Mm -hmm. develop a world around them so how do you go about developing and creating your characters i mean those, i understand the concept of this of this one where you're you know the, the the human dictionary and those things but for your other writing or all your writing when you when you go about developing characters what is that process like for you uh when i develop a character i i i want to make it someone who they've got to be somebody who can grab a reader's interest and hold it throughout the whole thing. I want to make them at times believable. I want to make them relatable. Um, uh, many of the characters I write usually have some sort of real world um, adherence to either myself or like loved ones around me um, that make these people, people that readers can get behind and support. Um, occasionally, uh, like we said before, I, I, I like to write a, a, a Guy Gardner type character, one who is good, but you just really want to see get punched in the face as hard as you can. The, um, the what's his name, Mikey from uh, Karate Kid or mm. something like that, Draco Malfoy, the kid, the person who you just want to see just get punched in the face and just smile about. Uh, those are the type of characters I like to develop. Um, ones where the characters drive the story not the story driving the character yes 
that, you could see that from a mile away you know like when the character pulls things unless you're writing lovecraft you know where there's this inability to escape fate and the and the story is pulling the character into insanity um otherwise yes it, you need to have a things happen to the character but the character has to feel like they're in control somewhat they have to be somewhat autonomous in this world you know um well which of your characters would you most like to have a drink with oh good question um everything i do always comes back to the human dictionary i i guess because he he was my first major character um as a matter of fact the, the whole premise behind the human dictionary um started off as a uh as a um a writing assignment for my students so i, I like watched a, i watched an episode of south park um where it was called the coonan friends and like all the kids made up their own superheroes so i literally parlayed that into a, a writing assignment for my students i went in school i'm like hey guys create your own superheroes and they, they loved it they ran with it and one of the kids i forget his name was kenneth turned to me and he was like if you could create a superhero what, what would it be i was like i don't know i'm an english teacher probably something like the human dictionary or something like that and i was like <laughs> it's like and i hope like you know have slang be his weakness and i was like <laughs> wait this is going somewhere and like i, I just start, sat down and just started writing it um it's what turned out to be one short story led into a second short story about atlas and a third one about the Soros rex and then it became an entire novel um uh, the way that i've written the human dictionary uh he's a, an interesting guy real hopeless romantic real kind of he's uh, he's got a, a, a almost a, a blood level sibling rivalry with his twin sister throughout the entire thing that really drives a large amount of the plot but in the entire time he feels like he's just being a normal guy and meanwhile she thinks he's being a complete d-bag and it's just like that perspective of is this how in my life my sister's actually seen me so so nice. yeah i i love that it became organically out of a teaching moment um which is how grammar man happened for me i was teaching developmental english and we focused a lot on grammar and things like that and i just started making jokes about oh yeah would it be cool if there was this evil villain fragmento you know who speaks only in fragments and and the fanboy you know the the abbreviation for the you know or the um warning yeah for fan yeah for and or whatever yet so you know the and uh i'm like hmm, wait a minute it was just like that it, it just like that moment um you know so no I, I, that's wonderful that's, that's that's fantastic so you're sitting with the human dictionary for a drink what's the first question that you're going to ask them so this is where life kind of gets in the way um he is such a developed character there are so many layers to him that only i know because no one else knows because currently on this computer i'm zooming you with i have two and a half other references novels that have yet to be published i just wrote them and publishers want to let things air out for a while before they come back and do as a matter again the first references has was published three times between three different publishers i'm just like just get book two out and like many of the questions i'd like to talk to him about air out in those other novels that okay. no one has read before <laughs> right no that makes sense you can't you can't uh you can't blow your cover yet i gotta i understand it's gotta be that's funny well maybe off camera <laughs> when the show's over you could tell me um because i you know that's it, one thing 
I've, I've talked with writers who have conversations with their characters, you know, they talk with them and, and this is how they kind of, they have notes and journals and where they like write as this character and they kind of, that's how they get to know the characters. And um, whereas I've never even imagined like anything close to like that, <laughs> excuse me. Do you uh, ever think of these characters in the way like they're real people, um, you know, or when you develop them, do you do you have some kind of like notes or folders of documents where you keep track of how what their personalities are? How do you develop them uh, like writing wise? In the uh, last book I wrote, uh, Naval R&D Whale Shark, the, the Creature Feature book, every single character in that book, with the exception of the main character, was loosely based off of people that I talk to on a daily basis. Uh, as a matter of fact, it would be difficult to miss. Um, there's a, a an ancillary character in the first few chapters named Dr. Matthew James, who is clearly after my brother uh, as Ma Matthew James Denyon. Um, and I would I just let I let life dictate who those characters were. I took who those characters were in my mind as knowing them as friends and family members and let them be the voices, the driving characterizations of those characters throughout that book. Um, were they excited to put them in the book or were they a little apprehensive about that? There was been a mixed bag on that. There were some who were very excited people like, uh, like I remember one friend of mine who I was like, literally I, I wrote your name once. Like, no, no, I have to buy this. I'm so excited. And other ones where I've done stuff and they're like, so you killed me. I'm like, but it's, it's, it's just, it had to happen. It was just, it hey. had to. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, right. No, I get that. Cause once people know that you're writing from a real experience or your real people you're using as characters, cause you're not supposed to, I mean, you have to put that caveat in the book and all these characters are fictitious and they are, but they could be based on, people i mean because you always invest a little bit of yourself in the characters too um i i, I think that's interesting because then readers start like my 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 first book uh, the the setting is based on the hometown in which i grew up and so there was a book club formed from my high school um, classmates they bought all my bought my book we had a little book meeting and it was wonderful and since they knew it was based in the town and they could all pick out like Oh, you mean this thing? And oh, I know where this is. And you know, they they got the the space because it's modeled after the downtown. And they all start wondering who the characters were based on. <laughs> like, like, oh, is this this person? Because you know, some of the characters are based on real people. Um, and others are just most of them are just completely, you know, fiction cloth. You know, but I found it fascinating that they were they were jumping in. And thinking, oh, I, I bet this person, this character is based on this person. Because they could see something in that character mm -hmm. that reminded them of the other person. And I found that completely fascinating. Like, oh, I never intended that. But that's that's great to know, you know, going forward. So, uh, um, I think one of the more difficult things I had was uh, the main female lead in my most recent book was uh, two teachers I just recently began working with. And uh, one of the issues was she's the main female lead. There was a, a, a sex scene that I had to write. And like, I, I had to go in and explain to them that it wasn't you that was doing this. It was a completely fictional character. I, I don't think that went over very well. I was going to say like, 
yeah, I could, I could see that being a little like uncomfortable. Like, oh, now you're writing. You just met me, and now you're writing, putting me into your fantasy books. You know, <laughs> I yeah. Did it, did it get smoothed out after that? Or oh, yeah, did, so. Okay. It, I'd known the, the the two women for about two years before I, okay. I came out. It wasn't like they they just met me and okay. You know, they they know who I am and they're all like, yeah, it's just Mark. <laughs> okay, okay, that's good. Yeah, no, I I, I get that. I, I yeah, I, I get that. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about creativity. Um, can you tell me what your creative process is like? I. Uh, to keep this pg i'm a shower guy literally i'll be in the middle of a shower like wait a second there's an idea <laughs> um it, it that goes from everything from projects i give my students to do in classrooms to what i'm cooking for dinner that night so these are literally just out of nowhere things dawn on me and it's like i'm just gonna run with that um there's very little uh, throughout my years of being an author and being on social media i've had people reach out to me and there's this one guy who keeps reaching out to me about developing a world for his story. And he's been developing just the world. He, has, he hasn't even come up with a, a concept to a plot or a character, just the world for eight years now. And he's like, am I overthinking this? I'm like, yes, yes, very much. So you're overthinking yeah. this. Unless you're it's, creating like a supplement for a role, you know, a, an RPG or something, and you're going right. to develop a world, but yes, you still need to people it, you know? Yeah. Um, to me, it's just, I have this idea and it's just, I, 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 in my head, I hear the, the firing gun of someone starting a race and then I just start running and I, I know where the end is. I don't know what's from here to there. Whatever falls in my head as I'm going is what happens to me hit the page that day. Oh, um, so that answers my next question, which is, are you a pantser or a plotter? It sounds like you are definitely a pantser. See their pants type of thing. What was that? Like the seat of their pants type of thing? <laughs> yes. Yeah. The term is, yeah, people who write by the seat of their pants versus That's plotters who, who plot everything out and have a detailed outline. Like I'm a plotter. So, and I, it goes from all my years in academia, you know, when I taught composition, you know, organization development. And so like my current work in progress, the, my plot, um, my outline for it is about 23 or 26 pages. Ooh. So yeah. Right. Um, so that's on the other other extreme but i've met, interviewed a lot of pantsers which they say i just get an idea and i start writing i have no idea what's going to happen until i write it down that just like fries my brain i'm like ha ah, how can, how does that work it's just like it just throws me into a tizzy i, I liken it to um a, like a, the human body i i have a skeleton before i work i don't know what the body looks like in into that point there's there's um, particular points I know I want to hit. Uh, they might be particular actions. They might be, as, as innocuous as there's one really important line or phrase or term that I want to use, and I will rewrite everything so it fits into there. Okay. Uh, I just, just uh, for example, I just, one of my favorite lines in, in Whale Shark was there's this point where the guy picks up a rusty harpoon. And uh, I'll stab it. Maybe the bitch will die of tetanus. And it's just like such a throwaway line, but I really wanted that line in there. Yeah. Well, sometimes the, the a line is what you first get. You know, you get that that first line or when you start. I tend to start with dialogue. If I start writing, like the ideas when they come, it's I hear a scene will come. And that's how I hear a character's voice, you know, 
and like the same you know what happened with my second book you know gage black hell's revenge it's a splatter western uh you know i i heard gage black and i heard, i just kind of wrote the scene even before i knew what the story was going to be i just knew who this character was I'm like oh my god he's just so full of hate you know and, and, and which is what you need for that kind of story it's a story it's a revenge story the purest story of all you know and uh so no no i i, I totally get that you, you get that line and like you 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 are working toward it you know it will happen um i um i can tell you when i wrote the references like as I said, the reference started literally as a, a short story about the human dictionary, and you know, I just I remember driving to my mother's house at the time, and I just this this image came in my head, like how cool it would be if the human dictionary was trying to get from one crime scene to another, but was just completely lost and had no idea, and then from the s- steamy shadows of a tree, this f- mysterious figure pops up and throws down a map and explains exactly how to get there and which streets to avoid because of like you know traffic jams and and then from there that was the hero of atlas evolved nice (laughs) this guy who was really just there to help the human dictionary get from point a to point b yeah that's great in my mind i was thinking it would be like jeeps like gps you know but yes atlas it it it, it's the paper old school um i love it that's how I used to drive when I would travel down to see my grandma and grandpa down in South Carolina. I would have a, an atlas before the age of GPS and made things wonderful. Mm-hmm. You just have written directions and you have an atlas. You just follow it through the state as you go, you know. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Do you, go, go ahead. Go, no, no, go ahead. I was going to say, like you, you mentioned Jeeps like that. Um, it's one of the funny parts of that story is I, I, I made the secret identities linked to the characters themselves so for example the human dictionary's name is richard shenary and of course dick is see i i was gonna ask because you know i was being sensitive because you you know no swearing i was like are you calling him dick shenary but i thought no no i can't say that those kids are gonna watch you know then you have uh atlas's name is michael allen phillips so his initials are literally map maps oh um, the source Rex was Dr. Sinclair O'Nim, but all of his friends called him Sin. Sin oh, yes, yes. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, right. No, no, no. That, that, that's wonderful. I, I, think, I think for those kinds of stories who are aiming them for kids, they have to have those great names. Mm. You know, you have to have something fun. Uh, so, no, no, no. That's, that's awesome. Um, when you're writing, do you use any kind of software to like help with your writing, like Babisco or Scrivener or Plotter or anything like that? Everything is straight up left in my brain. And then until it's poured out on either Google Docs or Word. That great commercial where there was a guy like uh, it was a Super Bowl commercial. And it was basically exactly how I am where like two guys are walking down the hallway. He's like, you ready for this? Me? He's like, yeah, everything I need is right here. All of a sudden a filing door, like filing cabinet door opens and knocks him unconscious. And you're like, now what? It's like, that would be me. If, if I had left a story half written somewhere and someone picked it up, like where, where's this going? You would have to figure it out. So choose your own adventure. Not at that point. Yeah. I gotcha. No, that's great. Um, yeah. See, I can't, I can't keep stuff in my head that long. Like when I get ideas down, I, I usually have a, I keep a book with me when I'm in the creative mode. Um, it's like a little, you know, like a little hardbound black book where I, I jot all my notes down and cause otherwise I'll forget it, but I'll write like dialogue and scenes and just ideas and concepts, you know, and those ultimately will turn into 
you know, books. But uh, yeah, I couldn't remember to save my life because there are times where I'm like, I look at my outline like, man, I, I'm glad I wrote this down when I did because I would never have come up with that dialogue like today. <laughs> you know, I'm glad I wrote that down six months ago because, man, eh, you know. Um, well, let's talk about your writing process. Mm -hmm. And what part of the writing process do you like the most? The actual hand, the, the, the writing aspect itself is the, the easiest part. It's for me, there, there's a lack of pre-writing a lot of times just because it's what, what is inspiring me at that moment. Um, I have, despite the fact that this can sound awful because I am an English teacher, I d despise editing. Um, the, the problem for me with editing is I'll read a book and, you know, my brain will, miss things that were inevitably there and then i'll go back and i'll read it again and i'll clean up like so say there's like 90 errors after the first read i pick up 40 then after the next one i get another 30 and by the time it's like there's only so many times you can read the same thing for like i cannot read this again <laughs> i have to move mm -hmm. on so inevitably things go to print with the most simplistic of errors and despite whatever software you have or anything like that it's going to happen unless you're in yeah. those billion companies that have people who get paid to read each individual word. Yeah. Well, um, do you, I mean, do you use beta readers uh, for your drafts at all then? I have in the past. Matt is often a beta reader for me and I am often beta read for him. Um, but again, we're, we're, we're fathers, we're teachers, we're the, the ability to sit down and critically read versus sit down and read are often things uh, normally when we beta read for each other, the issue becomes more plot driven things. Yeah. Um, I, I can, I can recall the first time he gave me his very first novel, uh, Chimera Scourge of the Gods. Mm -hmm. He gave it to me. And I was like, Hey Matt, this is awesome. Um, I would get rid of the entire second chapter. He's like, what is like, I can, I, I remember he was, he was having issues at the time with his boss and the entire in, in, in real life. So the entire second chapter was, kind of a passive aggressive way to like lash out at his boss and like it, it adds nothing to the plot you don't need that cut it and keep writing and he did and it worked out well for him um so for me beta reading sometimes is more of that plot driven idea versus a you know yeah. is this right <laughs> you're doing comprehensive editing rather than copy editing correct at that, at that stage yeah i'm fortunate i am fortunate enough to have uh, you know half a dozen or more people who are willing to read my my draft mm -hmm. and some of them are are focused on that comprehensive editing other writers i know who look at the plot and character development and some are really good at finding like misspellings grammatical errors because like you know like you you know i'm an english teacher or was um and you know you're not gonna you're not gonna get everything sometimes you'll miss a word because your brain fills it in but sure sometimes your fingers just don't put it in there uh so i i, I appreciate that they that they fan out over the spectrum and i i've got it kind of covered you know they'll send me back like oh you got 60 errors here i'm like thank you because <laughs> i didn't see him so i i appreciate that um yeah, you, as, as an, a, a writer too and particularly one um because you know you you understand you're an english teacher there are times where like my pride gets the better of me people are like oh you messed up here i'm like shut up no i did <laughs> as, as a writer you gotta you know it's difficult because you got to put yourself out there and like, right yes you, you yes. put stuff out there and i i, I, just, I remember reading I, I yeah i'm one of those guys who is self-obsessed with themselves that occasionally yes i do amazon and goodread myself to see what the reviews say and you know sometimes people are like me like this was yes. and by the time like I, I i read a great review about um whale shark and the guy was like uh the science makes no sense 
but it is such a fun read. I'm like, yes, that's the point. You'll take that, right? Yeah, he's exactly. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know which book it was. It might have been Gage Black got a uh, one star review on Goodreads, but there was like no no explanation for it. You know, I'm like, at least if you're gonna say it, it sucks. At least tell me what why you think it does. You know, um, and I remember getting uh, my third book, Toxic uh, Nonfiction the guy gave it glowing reviews, you know, it was about my coming out of fundamentalist Christianity and why I'm an apostate. And so it really discusses the Bible and all the horrible things that the Bible says that the church tends to ignore, you know? Um, and so, you know, it's very well vetted and, and researched. It's like a dissertation for crying out loud. Um, anyway, so he was like, yeah, I, I, I grew up in this and all this relates to me, but I'm only going to give it three stars uh because of too many f-bombs you know <laughs> and i'm like can i swear i mean i guess uh, you know if your kids are gonna watch it i don't want to swear in front of yeah, you um, okay uh so i wrote back uh, to him i go what's the fucking problem with that <laughs> you know uh, that's how to handle it. i mean i don't mind that's fine if, if 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 you're gonna take away a star because i say fuck a lot um i'm okay with that you know but uh no no that's that's good conversely enough as well um i i, I got a five-star review on because uh, i remember this guy reached out to me on facebook just to t- like glowingly talk about how much he really really enjoyed the references and he gave me a five-star review on uh, Amazon. Like, like the review was just like, I, I, I could find no reason to not give this a five-star. It's like, and I, I was very appreciative of it, but also part of me was like, can you go into depth? So I know what I did right to go and do that again. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, I, exactly. Um, right. When, 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 when readers, I mean, I'm always amazed that someone wants to buy my book anyway, and any of my books, yeah. and and then even more amazed when they go and they leave a review on Amazon, um, you know, even or Goodreads. That's that, that they took the time to do that, uh, but when they when they say things, because as a as a writer, you don't know what's going to work and what isn't, what's going to resonate with readers, and every reader's different. You know, you have no idea. But when the when they start coming in, and when when a preponderance of them start saying the same kinds of things, that's kind of a that's an amazing feeling. Wow, okay, I, I guess these are the things that work, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's just you never know. It's just you're just trying to tell the best story you can, and and hope that something connects with readers. You know, that's all. That's the best you can do. You know. When I sit down to write, I always think first and foremost i have to entertain myself because if i'm not entertained writing it no one's going to be entertained reading it so once i've entertained myself i know that the people out there like me will like it so that's always sure, right exactly and you and you can't worry about if people don't get it or or whatever because you know not everyone's going to like it and that's okay it's like that's fine um you know if everyone liked our books we would be selling you know billions of copies but you know, that's just not the right. case so um when did you first come to realize what your writer voice was? Um, I would probably actually say um, I, I wrote a lot. I wrote here, there, and everywhere in between everything from uh, crime fiction mini stories when I was a kid to uh, what, what I write today. And it was just, it was, it was what I just felt like writing at that moment. Um, as I said earlier, it was uh, the references was originally published three between three separate companies. One was a vanity publisher who I learned 
unfortunately the the evils of vanity publishing they're just predatory hey pay us money we don't care if you sell your book because we've made money um the second time I got picked up by uh two wonderful women running a, a company out of virginia uh heather hildenbrand and amanda axel uh they believed enough in me to give it a try uh through elephantine publishing uh unfortunately elephantine went out of business but it was through that process through these two women who it was the very first time that I wrote something that someone who I did not already have a personal relationship was sitting there going, you know, this is really, there's, there's something here. We want to help you get that voice out and working with Heather and Amanda really showed me the first time what my voice was like. And uh, the two of them made me a better writer without a doubt. Um, and I would really say it was that it was that experience more than anything else. Um, they unfortunately have moved on to other, other publishers at times who, I, I sit there and I go, why are you not Amanda and Heather? <laughs> um, I've, I've moved on to other publishers who turned out to be a lot like the vanity publisher I went, went with. And I'm just like, if it wasn't for me doing every single step of the way, no one would know this book exists. So um, I would have to say it was that process of republishing the references for the first time that really opened up my mind as to who I am as a writer, how I write, what I write and so forth like that. If you're doing all this stuff as a writer, you're doing all these things that a publisher should be doing. Is there a reason why you haven't switched over to KDP and just self-published if you're promoting and all those other things? My second novel, Phenomenal, was KDP for okay. reasons. Um, Phenomenal was a, a side project that I did at the very start of uh, the, the pandemic. I was literally locked in a house with my wife and my daughter and... I woke up every morning and for two hours, I walked down to my basement and had no idea what to do. Uh, the very last thing I'd given my students prior to going into um, hiding for lack of a better term for six months was uh, we had just gotten into very similarly a, a, a class project about creating superheroes, but I gave them a twist and I said, you're going to write a superhero story, but it has to be exactly 100 words and that's it. You can't go above or beyond. It has to be exactly 100 words. It's got to have a beginning, middle, and then and that became the open challenge so i remember writing one and i was like hey that's a really funny story so then i went in um first two hours every morning went downstairs and i wrote another one and another one and it essentially became phenomenal so the purpose behind that book is that it's 101 100 word superhero stories oh, that nice. if you read each one it's its own independent story but if you read all 101 it tells an overarching plot nice um when I put that together, again, the world was ending. I, I wasn't happy with the current publisher I had. And I was just like, I'm just going to float this out to KDP. I mean, it, what is it really going to hurt? I, I used uh, connections. The, the hardest part of the whole process is honestly finding cover work. But I used the connections I had made through the, out the years and reached out to people and hired somebody, uh, Eldon Brand, not Brand, Rant, um, out of Australia to do my cover work for me. And it, it worked out great. Your cover covers are important. Um, you know, I've I've designed three of my five books covers, and um, and then uh, had two friends did work for my other ones. That's the ones you can see behind me, my Splatter Western, mm -hmm. and uh, which my friend Chris Martinez did for me. I know Chris. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm just it. It's like I get to keep a piece of, piece of Chris you know with mm -hmm. me i'm so fortunate and he loves doing that cover 
And then my friend uh, Mike Gustavich, who was a comic book artist at Marvel DC, he did the cover um, for Death's Head, which I think is just an amazing cover. And uh, another friend, uh, Sean Burris, did the coloring. So I mean, these are these are these are the grabbers, I think, as far as like you know covers uh, covers go. And the other ones are you know, um, you know, something I could do myself because I can't draw. So uh, yeah, it's important those covers, and it's nice to have people who who can do art and, and, and make that book pop for you. Terribly enough, I, I went with my, my friend Howie has been, um, particularly in the first references story, was a, an overarching driving force. He would like be my sounding board. I'd bounce an idea off of him. Um, he came up with this brilliant idea for the first time we published the references. He's like, what if book one looked like the old fashioned Webster's Dictionary cover? And then book number two, we make it look like the thesaurus cover. And I was like, that's, that's like really cool. I like that idea. So we did that. So the first one comes out. It's got like the maroon with the white circle in the middle and everything. And it looks perfect. Only it was my first foray into really writing. And I realized that kids don't pick up a book just because it looks like a dictionary. As a matter of fact, that's a bigger reason for them not to pick up a book. You, you need to have that superhero on the cover. You need to have that fight scene. And without that nothing moves whatsoever unless you go out and personally talk to each individual person hey this is what's going to happen in this book this 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 and this but you got to pick it up they don't know that ahead of time right so, they're not going to they're not going to see past the, why the cover why it looks like a dictionary why why would you do that they're not going to see that kind of uh retro that homage that you know kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of thing they're not going to pick up on that yeah so yeah. It's terrible it, despite every adult i ever knew growing up telling me yeah, even adults judge a book by its cover. You can have a truly yeah. awful book, but have a cool cover and sell a dozen more copies than someone else who has yeah. a Well, I, I was doing some research for a, a paper I wrote uh, in grad school um, about, uh, you know, some graduate classes I was taking about publishing, the, the sad state of affairs with, with publishing. And I said, people who self-publish often have covers that are more dynamic and exciting than books that come out from a traditional publishing you know, publisher house. And that's because when you have a, a name like Stephen King, you don't need a great cover to sell your book. All you do is they're going to slap the title of the book, his name on there, and that's all you need. Yeah. Um, but, but people who are like, you know, like me who don't have a publisher who just are writing stuff out there, this is how you convey something to people about what's going to be in this book. And it's like a like a comic book. I mean, the covers pull you in. Like, oh, this comic book has all this great scenes. I I gotta I gotta buy that. Man Wolf is in this issue of Spider Man. I'm totally buying that. You know, um, so no, I, that's exactly. It. I might want a dynamic, engaging cover. You know, I, that that makes perfect sense to me. Um, you know, you had mentioned you'd talk, make characters based on people that you know. Uh, so, but how much? of yourself do you put into your characters i like to think that secretly i'm in none of them but personally i know i'm in every one of them so uh if it's nothing less than uh particularly like if it's a character based on someone else i know how much of that is that person versus my personal perception of that person therefore me being part of that um I like to say that uh, the the main character in my my last book, uh, the, the whale shark, uh, I, I tried 
not to make myself any characters. Matter of fact, the main character's name is um, Stephen Bench Hawthorne. And the idea behind the name was an homage to three of my favorite um, creature feature writers. Uh, uh, and I just tried to make this this kind of aloof yet suave, I don't know if that's even possible, type of guy who was just out there. But I, I, I'd like to think that for as hard as I tried to not make myself a character, I always make myself a character <laughs> in one portion or another. From yeah, or anything. you project onto someone who you would like to be, you know, like yes. I create characters that you would like to exist in the real world. You know, yes. like, yes, I want this person to be a real person. Uh, no, no, I, I, I get that. Um, do you do any research for your books? Uh, and if so, what kinds? If I do research, it's normally stuff. So one of the greatest writing uh, advices I've ever given to me was by my eighth grade writing teacher, Mr. Donahue. And he said, you know, write what you know. So um, I remember as a kid, I, went, like, I had this crazy idea of writing a, like a satanic uh like knight of mephisto story and he was like what do you know about the subject i was like absolutely nothing it just sounds cool and yeah. he's like oh don't write that <laughs> it's like so write what you know um when it came to the aspects of like writing the, the references which was all about like you know proper grammar and types of books and that, that that stuff i already know it's it's my wheelhouse it's superheroes and grammar the two things i don't even have to look up yeah. um when it came to the creature feature books, it was all about the process of, uh, I've probably read 50 different creature feature books throughout the last 10 years. Um, and I know the formula to do it. it it's something I'm very well versed in. But I, I, when I do research, it's usually for something so small and minimal that it's just a throwaway portion tossed into a story. I'll research... Um, when I was doing the, the creature feature, uh, different boats and boat engines. So when I'm writing down, this person's got this boat, it's a believable description of a boat. Mm -hmm. Or uh, I, I had a conversation in the story where um, I was like, oh, we got to be careful. The, the, the creature's eating too many mercury-rich fish. And I uh, had to go and research, okay, which fish are mercury-rich? And what's the downside of having a mercury-rich diet and stuff like that? So those are the silly things that I research outside of that. It's because I'm trying to stay in the wheelhouse of what I know. Um, most of it is just coming organically. Yeah. The, the, the details, those tiny things that, especially if you're going to bring in this kind of science or history of any kind, then you have to, you have to know what you're talking about. You know, you have to bring it in in a way that is authentic and, and accurate without bludgeoning someone over the head with it. You know, mm -hmm. that's how you deal with it. I mean, I did, but for both of these books, uh, Death's Head, it's my homage to The Phantom. It takes place in the early 1930s in and near Haiti. So I was researching Haiti and then voodoo and zombies because, you know, Baron Samity is a main character, one of the Loa. And so I wanted to be respectful of that, of the religion, the voodoo, and I wanted mm -hmm. to make sure I was doing it correctly and, and not, you know, not trample on, on their beliefs and, uh, same thing with, with Gage Black. It takes place right after the Civil War. So what kind of weapons were around in 1876? And what were the mail routes? And, you know, just, just those kinds of things that I was cognizant of them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because if I wrote about it, you know, someone who is a historian who loves that era, they're going to pick it up. They're going to say, oh, okay, this is this is period correct. These are the types of weapons that were there. So 
Um, but I don't want that to get in the way of the story. But when he picks up a shotgun, I'm like, I know, oh, the difference between a shotgun and a coach gun. Like, okay, see, I know what that word is now. I know what that is. So like, okay, I'll, I'll use that. Um, so no, I, I get that. Um, interesting that. The way you talk about like that, um, I'm going to throw him under the bus here, but Matt, when he wrote a, um, one of his first book, his most successful book was a book called Atomic Rex. And um, I'll never forget him telling me the story. He got a review on Amazon for a guy who was who really enjoyed the story, but was like really upset about something where my brother referred to one of these dinosaur like creatures as oh, I can't remember what the word was, but it was basically like a, a, almost like a quadruped type dinosaur. And he used a bipedal name. The guy's like, well, you know, the, the story was great, but this was wrong. You know, if he walks on all fours, it should be this and like that. And my brother was like really upset. He went back to the publisher, had him change the whole script of the novel, had him send out another copy to that guy. Uh, and I'll never forget it, like, because we both had two young uh, daughters at the time. He's like, you know what? That's what I get for doing my research on a TV show, Dinosaur Train on PBS. <laughs> that's fantastic. Oh, that's, that's excellent. Um. Do you have a favorite time of day to write? I know you said you would go down in the mornings, but is that your preferred time uh, to write or do you have another time that you like better? Midday is where I find a lot of the juice is really flowing. It's I'm a habitual four cups of coffee guy. Uh, so usually after that fourth cup is when things really start getting clear and this is the time to write. Um, I will say that I may have in the past developed interesting class planning around those particular so there is at least once a month where i tell my students we have a free write friday and we're all just going to sit down and write something it doesn't matter so I'm like as you guys write i'm i'm going to write too and <laughs> utilize that time to write nice um when you write do you listen to you know any kind of music or um distractions or something like that in the background or do you need it completely silent um the quieter, the better is as much as, okay. So as strange as this sounds, I find that, as I just said, I'm a four cup a day coffee drinker, but when I'm in the heat of writing and I'm actually writing, I switch over to hot tea and I find that that is what centers me more is drinking probably like seven or eight cups of hot tea after my four cups of coffee. And then I probably don't sleep that night, <laughs> but um, that's what centers me. Um I, I have in the times used um, relevant uh, sounds. Like I'll go into Spotify and I'll play like an instrumental blend of songs from like Endgame. Um, so they're superhero related. If I'm writing a superhero story or I will go and put on the, uh, the instrumental soundtrack to Jaws if I'm writing a creature feature or something like that. So I find that inspirational at times, but that's more of a, uh, every once in a while more than a most time type of writing tool okay how often do you write or try to write uh though the the times i write are usually deadline inspired i'm not gonna lie <laughs> i'm a habitual procrastinator um i i started writing whale shark probably eight years ago i my, my wife and daughter were asleep and i picked up an ipad and like this idea came to me and i probably wrote a thousand words on it and then it sat there. It sat there for eight years. Occasionally during those free write Fridays, I'd add a few more words to it. And then that phone call with Matt. And they were like, hey, we want the story. Get it to us in a month. And I'm like, hey, 
I'm going to write every day now. <laughs> and then you find all the time and you write down as fast and as quick as you can. Uh, you, you develop everything. And it's, it's, it's when you're inspired to write that you find that that inspiration has been there all along. That story has been sitting in your brain. And it's like, finally, it's our chance to actually breathe a little here. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. That's, that's great. Um, tell me how you felt seeing your book in print for the first time. So I'll never forget. My wife and I came home from like dinner out and uh, the vanity publisher was the very first time I did something published and they sent up me like three copies for free. Ooh, so much worth my money. Uh, but I remember like seeing the box on the front porch when we pulled up and we went inside and we opened the box and my wife had been chilling a, um, a bottle of champagne purposely for that moment. And it was really the only other time I can compare it to. And my wife will kill me for this comparison is when I saw my daughter for the first time, it was basically like, this is my kid. This is a kid that I made all by myself. And th that's what it is. And I've, I've had similar conversations with Matt. Like he's, he agrees to a degree that like, it's, it's, that's what it is. It's, it's your baby. It's you sat there and sweat and cried and, you know, wrote something and then deleted 20 pages of it and then rewrote exactly what you wrote to begin with. And you came back and here it is all that, you know, in your hands, someone else said, Hey, this is good enough for me to publish. And here it is. Um, that, that, that's the sensation I get whenever I unbox a new story, whether it was my first one or my last one or the everything in between. Yeah. Seeing something in physical form lends a sense of permanence and reality to it. You know, when it's just on the word processor on your computer, and you're the only one who's ever read it or looked at it. Uh, that's one thing. But once it comes out in print, there's just a whole different feel to it, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, have you ever read your work like a year or more after you published it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I went back and I wrote the references. I think I want to say that I published in 2012. And my daughter was born in 2013. And I want to say it was like 2015. We were seeing in the backseat of my wife's car. I, I want to say she ran into like a store real quick and we just didn't want to get the kid out of the car. So I sat there and I found a copy of it back there. I was like, oh, honey, I'll read this to you. And I like, I start reading it aloud and I was just like, wow, I wrote that. That's, that's better than I expected. <laughs> and like, it really caught me off guard. And it was just something that I was just like, huh, I'm a lot better at this than I thought I was. <laughs> yeah that, that experience because it, it's a surreal experience you know mm -hmm. when you go back and read it again um i, I normally don't because you've read it so many times by the time you set it out you just let it out go in the world and you know that's it's, it is what it is um but yeah i was working my fifth book as a sequel is the is the second book in a four book series started with my first and uh so I had to go back and read the first one because they take place just a few months apart. You know, it's, in the, it's through the course of a year, these four books in, in the course of a year. And uh, so I'm like, oh, I, I have to read this first one because I don't remember. I don't I remember the basic plot, but little else. And I was really worried about like how many cringy moments am I going to get? Like, because that was my first book, you know, and I, I had written movie scripts and but I hadn't really written stuff like that for a long time. Uh, never a novel. And I read it and I'm like, oh, you know, it's really, I mean, it's just, there's a couple saccharine parts because it's, it's a cozy mystery, but it was, it was like, there were a lot more moments like, oh, 
that's not so bad. You did all right, Mark. And way more like, God, I don't remember writing this at all. Like, I have no recollection of writing this. I know I did. I know I, I wrote these words, but I just don't remember writing it. Like, in the heat of the creative moment, you're just telling that story, and it's just all coming out. And to see it a year later, like, wow, that's – I don't remember that at all. <laughs> it was a really weird out-of-body experience almost. Kind of weird. Yeah, no, I – I, I remember going back and like doing similar things like that and finding things I've written in years past. Uh, I remember I was writing a short story when I was in college. It was like a, I don't know, I had the aspirations of writing like a, 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 a mini collection of horror stories and putting them all together. And I, I remember the one horror story I was writing was essentially like, um, it was like a film class going on and like you know like college kids put together a film and would show it and then like afterwards the the professor of the college class would come out and critique what they just did and i remember i wrote the one scene and then i put the story aside for probably like a semester and i came back the following semester and i looked at it and i was just like god that's just that's just awful i like I'm really upset at myself that I wrote something so terrible. So what we, we became very kind of passive aggressively therapeutic was that I now had the role of the professor who had to go critique this work. And as a professor, I went back and I trashed my own work to myself. <laughs> it was like, it was awful. It was this, and it actually plot wise worked out fine. <laughs> it's like, it was kind of neat. <clears throat> yeah. Sometimes those, those kinds of works. Yeah. Um, you have to have those early, early, horrible, horrifying reactions to what you've put. Like, well, how, how could I have written this? Uh, yeah, exactly. Just a handful of questions, Mark, uh, mm-hmm. left. Um, what is your writer fantasy? Uh, okay, it's going to sound cheesy. You alluded to it earlier. There have been a handful of times where Matt and I have worked on the same project here or there i would like to sit down and write a full length master novel just the two of us um over something um something original not 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 a continuation of anything i've written or continuation of anything he's written but just something brand new that we've never written before i'd like i'd like to do that once just to say that we did it yeah is he aware of this i'm certain he's got similar ideas and plans the, the same way um he and i we, we, we tend to have the same thoughts quite often. So it wouldn't surprise me if that was actually the case. Nice. I hope that does happen. Uh, I'd like to read it. You know, the two of you together, that, that would be awesome. Um, what advice would you give for anyone who wants to write? Um, first and foremost, and it was something I, I dropped the line earlier today, entertain yourself. If you're not entertaining yourself, you're not entertaining anyone else. So don't write something just because it's what's popular. Don't write something just because it's uh, it sounds like a good idea. Write you. Um, they don't. I, I, I dabbled in romance when I was in eighth grade, just because I was trying to impress a girl, and I hated every moment of writing those things. So um, it's it's most important to write what's going to entertain you more than anything else. Because if you're not entertained, the reader's not entertained. Yes, I find that to be true. Um, yes, you have to make yourself happy. You know, that's like the one piece of advice I get, I take, keep from Stephen King, uh, is write for yourself. Don't, don't care about what your readers might think. Don't care about what your editor might think. 
you know, don't give a rat's ass about anything but other than what you want to write. And being self-published, I have that with every book. Like, yes, you know, this is this is what I want to write, you know, so now I get that. Um, and I know you mentioned you have a couple of books in the works, but is there something you can tell me about your current work in progress um, that, that you're allowed to say? Or do you have another book that you can tell me about? That's a good question. Um, References 1 came out, in, like I said, 2012. It's been 10 years. And References 2 was written probably a year after References 1. Um, it gets dark. I, I got heavy into watching the television show Arrow at the time. So where References 1 has one or two dark moments, References 2 gets very dark. Uh, it, it, there, there are developed characters that don't make it out. There are characters who are forever changed and characters you see in a different light. Um, part of me blamed Arrow for that. Part of me blames Harry Potter for that because as, as I was growing up, I realized that Harry Potter started as a kid's book but ended as a teen's book by the time it was done being written because it grew with the reader. And that was one of my goals was to have the book grow with the reader. So there is a darker tone to references two that wasn't in references three and then in i'm sorry references one but in references three which i uh, i've also gotten a couple thousand words on there is more of a comedic um almost a uh, a heist movie feel to it so i it's ironic it kind of follows the um the infinity war saga idea where you have like the funny avengers then the dark and uh the dark infinity war and then the heist end game it's kind of Ironically, what I did almost 10 years before Avengers did. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Interesting. And my last question, mm-hmm. where can we find your books? Ah, excellent question. All my books are currently available through Amazon.com. Um, now that COVID has seemed to done a dip down, uh, you should still start seeing me uh, going out to shows uh, more often in the area. Um I found I, I actually do run an, an independent show in Lawrence, New Jersey called Superhero Day, uh, where I do invite other authors to come um, free of charge and check that stuff out. I'm hoping to bring that back this fall. Um, I know Collinswood Book Festival and a couple of other things, uh, but primarily through Amazon.com. Um, I am in the works of getting my own website put up, but once I do, it's pretty much going to go to Amazon or Raventail Publishing for um if you're looking to pur- purchase Whale Shark, I know my other publisher, Wild Hunt Press, I think is exclusive through Amazon anyway. Excellent. Mark, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Um, it's been great to get to know you and, and your writing and um, looking forward to seeing seeing what else uh, comes out, especially with uh, between you and Matt. That's, um, you know, that's going to be great. Awesome. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I'm going to do my commercial and then we'll get out of here. That sounds good. Hey, you've been watching and listening to Between the Lines. You can find us at unsaneradio.com. Listen to full episodes or download to your device. You can watch us on YouTube. That's Between the Lines Podcast. If you're there, that's where you're watching. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. You can also find us on the Hotel Talk channel on Roku. If you know someone who would uh, like our show, tell them about us. And if you're a writer and would like to come on uh, for a chat, email me at betweenthelines54 at yahoo.com. That's between the lines five four at yahoo.com. And Mark, here's my cheesy outro. See you next time between the lines. Right, <laughs>